Welcome to this week's episode of Mixed Methods. A couple announcements before we get started. First, join us next Thursday, February 1st at 11 a.m. Pacific time for a Q&A in the Slack group with today's guest, Emily Goligowski. You can request an invite under the community tab at mixed-methods.org. Also, check out Mixed Methods on Medium. You'll find UX research how-tos, write-ups on the latest conferences you might have missed, and more. Today's episode is sponsored by DScout, a remote research platform that is turning fieldwork on its head by allowing researchers to conduct experience sampling with real people right on their smartphones. Visit dscout.com to see how easy it is to start your own study. Here's this week's show. Emily Goligowski grew up in a family of journalists. But after studying the subject in college, she felt it wasn't quite for her. So she began exploring other paths that would still allow her to be part of the world she'd grown up loving. A few years and another degree later, Emily found herself working as a design researcher at the New York Times. In 2015, she became the first researcher to go into the newsrooms, actually helping reporters better understand things like archiving to readers' needs during breaking events. Last year, she moved on to the Membership Puzzle Project, an NYU and Day correspondent collaboration exploring sustainable paths for public service news organizations. In her work, Emily is experimenting with new methods, presentation formats, and so much more. I could not be more excited to share her work with you today. This is Ariel Sionflon, and you're listening to Mixed Methods. Today's episode, Outside the Lab. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I thought that we could start, you know, by just having you go through a little bit of your story, your background, and, and how you got to where you are. Sure, absolutely. Thank you so much. First of all, I love talking with other UX researchers, and I really appreciate the invitation to be here. Um, so I am from a family of journalists, and um, and journalism has always sort of run in my blood. And, and asking people questions and conducting interviews, I think, has been a really natural sort of capacity that was instilled in me from an early age. My mom used to say to us, you have to ask one really good question every single day. And then <laughs> at the dinner table at night, she would ask, well, what was the question and, and what was the answer that you heard? And so I, I studied journalism at Northwestern and then later reported at the Cape Times in um, Cape Town, South Africa. And it was about the best research and journalism training ever because there was not consistent um, internet access in the newsroom. And I would recommend that as as amazing training for anyone who wants to pursue this work is really to get out and actually go into the world and have to find the answers, not just default to looking them looking them up. Yeah. Uh, and then I worked for a little bit um, in advertising. I sort of, like many UX researchers, I've worn a, a number of different hats um, and got really excited about UX research and sort of human factors at the Stanford D School, um, which is where I took some classes in graduate school. Yeah. So I was excited to take user experience research learnings to Mozilla Foundation and thinking about how we could serve people around the world with open web technologies, and then later brought some of those methods to the New York Times and now to our work at the Membership Puzzle Project at New York University. 
something that I really enjoy about this project is getting to talk to people about how they even got into this work because I feel like there are so many different paths and so many different stories. And it's really interesting talking to you because I've never met someone before who came to this work through journalism, actually. Um, and so I wonder, like, was that a purposeful thing or like how did that, you know, transition happen? Were you doing journalism? Then you were like, oh, I want to switch over or was it kind of more organic just as you kind of discovered the field at the D school? No, I think it was a little bit more organic and it's such a good question. I mean, of course, with any of these career decisions, hindsight can be sort of 2020. But I really think that the same skills and curiosity that compel reporters really are what make for strong um, human factors research. Mm -hmm. And the idea that wanting to know, well, well, why did something happen? What motivated these changes or these experiences to occur? How do people feel about them? And what does this mean for all of us going forward? Mm-hmm. Um, and I really think I've, I've loved working sort of at the intersection of news and research because I think they just are so complementary as far as going out, finding a story and coming back and sharing that in a compelling way just really feels like sort of this through line across all of the across all of the work, but I would probably be remiss if I, if I had told you that I had a grand plan, it was maybe a little bit more accidental than that. I mean, that said, I have absolutely loved getting to know and work with user experience researchers around the world, because I think it's a really compelling group of people who have just so many varied interests, whether it be literature or sociology, um, sort of other social sciences. And so it's a group of people I've gotten to learn a great deal from. And so I always tell um, people who are interested in starting or transitioning to careers in this field that you'll meet just about the most interesting um, people you can possibly imagine. And it can be worth undertaking this work for that alone. Yeah, definitely. I feel like that is a great transition into kind of talking about the work that you, you know, have actually been doing just around stories and creating narratives. And I would love to, you know, hear a little bit more about um, how you took journalism and your background in that and how you took this interest that you, you know, very clearly have in human factors and user experience research into your work um, at the New York Times in particular. And just have you maybe describe what your role there was a little bit, because I think it's so interesting and unique. Sure. So um, I worked for about three years um, on the Audience Insights team at the New York Times. And that was a group that sort of sat alongside data analytics with the idea of really being able to partner qual and quant research so that we could learn more about the audiences that the New York Times wanted to serve. Um, And maybe about a year into that role, I had an opportunity to work with Alex McCallum's audience development team within the newsroom. And that was an amazing experience, the chance to take the work that we did, whether it be through surveys, through focus groups, through in-person interviews, remote usability testing and the like, and be able to actually sit alongside the news and feature desks was, I think, a really powerful combination and a great learning experience for me. Uh, And so what we would do is try to address what are the questions that we could learn about um, across different desks. So thinking about things like um, breaking news, which is an area that I focused on quite a bit um, for the better part of a year, or thinking about, you know, the styles desk or the book review team and what what we might specifically address with them in mind. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of two different kinds of questions, sort of the um, the news organization writ large level questions, and then the desk level 
questions. Mm -hmm. And like many of the organizations that the people who listen to this podcast work for, it can be quite a siloed organization. And so always trying to understand how do I prioritize with both types of questions in mind? And are there things that I can learn to help one team that actually have greater implications for the rest of the organization? Um, And so in that way, it was just an absolutely fascinating learning experience. Um, and one where, you know, I always tell people it's almost like working with every Val Victorian you ever met, that it's mm-hmm. such a smart group of people, um, who really have deep expertise in the subject areas they cover. And so the expectation that you be on your game is, is really strong. And I think that that's fantastic career preparation, um, for anyone who's gotten to work there or, um, or any other organization that's full of people who are really critical and thoughtful about the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that brings up so many questions for me. But when you say it's like working with every valedictorian, I'm like, what's the lunchroom like there? Did you ever just like, you know, hang out with like Nicholas Kristoff or like Paul Krugman? Like just I'm curious, you know, before we kind of get into the work more, what just the, you know, the overall like culture and dynamic was like there. Sure. So um, I did not get to know very many of the opinion columnists. I did not um, work very much with the opinion team, but I will tell you that um, Nicholas Kristoff's reputation for being a a graceful person, um, for someone who, when you share research insights, really is thoughtful about them and comes back with well-considered questions, that reputation really precedes him. I think he's he's a great client of, of research. Um, and, you know, I look back on my time there really fondly. And I think one of the, the last projects that I had a chance to work on was with, um, was with the book review team, Pamela Paul's team, um, really thinking about, you know, how might they be able to reach the next generation of, of readers of books around the world. And that mm-hmm. work, um, we did sort of a, a, deep dive, both a a diary study as well as in-person interviews. Um, And a a memory that I think back on really fondly is the chance to go to Powell's Books in Portland, Oregon um, with Pamela and her deputy at the time, Radhika Jones, um, and really think about, okay, in a brick and mortar space, how is it that that books are presented in really thoughtful ways. So here we looked at staff picks, like the way that and anyone who has spent time in an independent bookstore can can almost visualize a, a handwritten sort of short recommendation uh, from a staff member that sits alongside a book. And this is a way to call out hi, amongst the thousands of, of titles that we have in the shop, here's one we really want to draw your attention to. Mm-hmm. And so that became sort of a kickoff for, for thinking about, one, how do we um, make our reviewers really, you know, feel more visible? Um, and in a situation where bylines are not necessarily obvious as conveying who that writer is and, and what their personal preferences are and what their history is, um, how, do we, how do we humanize writers a bit? Um, and then also, what is the role of curation. I mean, when we think about the New York Times book review or any other sort of um, arbiter of, of taste, um, how can we take the best of what's being done in physical spaces and translate translate that particularly to our digital edition? Mm-hmm. And so just a, a really thought-provoking use of almost adjacent research in that situation. Um, and also knowing, and I know that you've talked with, with other guests, including Matt Galligan about this, um, around the idea that sometimes research doesn't just help us find this undiscovered gem, but if anything, it can confirm or 
um, refute some hypotheses that we have. And so at that time, um, Pamela Paul and her team were planning to launch a new column called Matchbook with Nicole Lamy. And the idea was that that readers would be able to write in, here's a question that I have, and that Nicole would be able to have a, a critic sensibility um, in sharing recommendations of, of titles that would help address the specific question that they had. So almost like a Dear Abby, um, but for for people who love books. <laughs> and so that that column was already in the works at the time that we conducted um, a study, I think with about 45 young readers around the country. And the idea was that, you know, Matchbook ended up being, I think, a solution that really matched what we heard from them was the need to, I think, personalize and, and, um, find an appropriate tone to bring recommendations to them. So if anything, it just confirmed that the team was on the right path for one potential solution to address what young readers told us they wanted. Mm -hmm. So it's not that user experience research in that situation found the exact solution. If anything, it just confirmed that we were onto something really rich um, and and the column has launched, I think, very successfully. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsor. Long before starting this podcast, I knew about Dscout. I had heard from friends about an app where you could get paid to tell people about your experience doing something like shopping for a pair of pants or your daily yoga routine. As a researcher, obviously I was intrigued and then impressed when I checked it out. Dscout makes it crazy easy to set up studies and get in-context moments about the topics you're most interested in. The app is changing the way research is done from postmortem to an in-context experience sample. Learn more at dscout.com. Yeah, that's such a cool story. And I feel like it really highlights something that's really stood out to me about your work, both at the New York Times and at your um, current organization, the Membership Puzzle, which is this analogous work that you do, you know, where you take an idea or a concept that the team is investigating and you find something that you know is representative of that in the real world like the bookstore that you mentioned pal's bookstore which i love pal's bookstore by the way in portland um but yeah i think it's so interesting how you do that and so like fun right and and something that it it kind of you know makes me wonder is earlier you mentioned um how you, you know, at the New York Times, you have the same issues that other people have in terms of prioritizing work. And so I wonder how you, you know, kind of justified that to your team or how you made that a priority, because I feel like often researchers are interested in doing projects like that. But it's difficult when you have like, you know, 20 requests and basically more work than you can already do if there were three of you to kind of like prioritize those things that those things that are maybe like a little bit less traditional or, you know, you're not quite sure like the value that you'll get out of them. So yeah, I would love to hear about how you did that. Absolutely. And I think you described it to me um, really beautifully as saying, how do you make sure it doesn't just feel like a fun field trip? Mm-hmm. And times when I've taken, you know, teams from the New York Times to go and meet um, a DJ when we were thinking about, well, what is the best of analogy of remixing coverage? And, mm-hmm. and how do you present that in new ways that feel fresh and that sort of feel timeless? And I think part of what precedes being able to get outside the building um, is the importance that you've started to answer some of the core questions um, in ways that that 
people feel confident in. So I think about this from the point of view of the Membership Puzzle Project, which is um, a an initiative to understand what news organizations might do to better design for trust um, and thinking about alternative funding um, structures for media. And one of the things that we've done is conducted interviews with, at this point, probably about 70 publishers around the world, 150 members of news sites, really to develop themes that that we feel very, you know, that we really have fact-checked. Mm-hmm. And then we start to do the analogous research. So the idea is that almost in some ways we're building or we're baking sort of a layer cake so that we're getting at questions from multiple different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really important. First of all, I think it's imperative to not just talk to people within our own industries. It's too much navel-gazing. And mm-hmm. I think it doesn't always prompt the creative thinking that we need. Um, today, in, in my role with Jay Rosen and with New York University and Day Correspondent, which is a member-funded newsroom out of the Netherlands, um, you know, there's a lot that we can learn from talking to other publishers. But I also want to kickstart our thinking, knowing that membership and and questions of belonging are not just um, questions that came up yesterday and that there's actually quite a bit that we can learn from other spaces. Um, And so our team has really been thinking about what can we learn from gaming communities? What can we learn from faith-based groups? What can we learn from YouTube news shows and service clubs? And you know, it's not that we just throw ideas out there and then we go set up time and we and we talk to people all over the world as joyous as a job that would be. Mm-hmm. It really is being very thoughtful about having limited resources and limited time and saying, what are the core questions that we want to address? Which spaces must we speak? what must we go investigate? Um, and then, you know, really coming up with a clear sense of when we know those questions will be answered or, or when we'll have enough indication that we have some solid footing. And I think this is a really tough question for, for researchers, which is when is my work done? And often the answer can be when my time or my, or my budget sort of runs out. And I encourage us to think more deeply so that we're not um, spinning our wheels and and so that we are making sure that we're being inclusive of enough different kinds of voices and spaces in our research, but that we also know when it's time to potentially move on and go and ask other questions. And that's a really hard exercise. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think you bring up such a good point, right? Like, for example, with the question that you're trying to address right now around membership, there really are so many interesting, deep powerful examples of people who have spent, you know, decades, if not longer, trying to answer this question of like, how do we build strong communities? How do we, um, you know, make people like really solid members of a certain community? So it it definitely makes sense. I think it's, um, it's, and I think it's something that researchers want to do more. Something that I wonder, especially from your experience as someone who's worked at a company like Mozilla, right, which is a more traditional tech company, and then worked in, you know, these, um, I would say less traditional for user experience research or newer in terms of like the New York Times and the membership puzzle. Um, How was it different? Like, did you see opportunities to do this sort of work at Mozilla? Did you do this sort of work at Mozilla? Um, And if not, why not? Like, I guess, yeah, I'm curious about, like, how do we bring this kind of work and this approach into a more traditionally, like, straightforward tech space? It's such a good question. And I would tell you that 
when I was at Mozilla, I was pretty young in my research career and I used surveys and focus groups almost exclusively as methods. Mm-hmm. Um, when I worked at the New York Times, I had the the benefit of being able to work alongside data analytics in, in really powerful ways. And I think that combination sort of can't be overstated. And now with the Membership Puzzle Project, I've gone back to, um, you know, working with a a leaner team um, and really in many ways having to take what organizations take, tell us and share with us at face value, Um, investigating that as much as we can, but knowing that we we really have, you know, qualitative abilities, but uh, are not so invested on the quantitative side and also wouldn't have access to, um, to publishers data in the same, in the same ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think Actually, I would almost flip your question on its head, which is how can we encourage tech companies and bigger organizations to be as scrappy and thoughtful as smaller shops? Um, Mm -hmm. Because I think that when we think not just that everything needs to be studied and as much as I love A-B testing, um, I think sometimes organizations can overdevelop those muscles and not do so much work on sort of the product development research side, sort of the spaces that can feel more, more open. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I, would, I guess what I would really encourage us to be doing is to think about um, methods that can feel sort of murky, like ethnography, like observation, as actually being able to tell us a great deal more in the long run Maybe they won't address our day-to-day questions about, you know, should the button be blue or red or how does, how do people feel about this flow? But if those, if those methods and sort of the, the murkier research spaces might be able to tell us more about what people need moving forward and actually represent a larger product discovery opportunity, I would absolutely encourage more of our organizations to be thinking in those, in those areas. Mm-hmm. Emily, how does your, just in terms of your workload, you know, I'm trying to actually like imagine, you know, your role in this project and, and kind of what you're, you're describing, what would you say in terms of like a breakdown between how much of your time you spend doing analogous work or ethnography or observation versus, um, you know, let's say in-depth interviews or surveys, like how does that break down right now in your current role? in terms of like 50% this, 50, you know what I mean? Sure, absolutely. So in our work with the Membership Puzzle Project based at New York University in Manhattan, we work with six research assistants who are located around the world. And each of them has a very specific question that they are asking with me. So Anika Gupta, who is based in Washington, D.C., is asking what modern day publishers can learn from public radio stations. And that is the specific purview of her research. And she's doing that sort of qualitatively. Um, and, and then there are five other amazing assistants who are, are working alongside her to ask sort of similar questions. Um, and most of that work to date has been um, through interviews and through observation, including observation um, alongside members, alongside the people who actually choose to pay for um, the the news organizations that we're studying. Mm-hmm. We have a, um, a big push that we are currently working on, which is a, a worldwide survey um, to be able to understand more of what members need from their side of the social, the social contract with, with publishers. Um, 
In terms of percentages, I would say actually things pretty much um, break down into like neat fourths between survey, ethnography, um, in-person interviews, um, including one-on-one interviews and um, and group sessions. So the way that we have undertaken the focus groups is a little bit different than I've done with any other organization um, in that we will host a meal um, at a at a newsroom, let's say Berkeley side in, in Berkeley, California, and we'll invite people from their from their publishing staff, from their reporting staff to come and, and really break bread with the, the people who pay to support the work that they do. Um, and we'll put out a sort of a call for people to participate. In some situations, we have done screeners, although it sort of depends on how big the, the space is for the meal that we want to host. And then I'll facilitate a conversation that is myself um, asking questions of the of the members um, and with the the publisher or any of the reporting staff being able to to ask questions and we've published this research guide basically the discussion guide on our website which is membershippuzzle.org and we absolutely encourage people to take it and improve upon it for their own purposes um, and in that sort of in that research guide we talk a little bit upfront just about background information what are the things that you choose to support? with your time, energy, and money, including and beyond news. Um, if you were to describe this news organization as a, as a physical store, what store would it be? So we're starting to get at, you know, what, I guess, how do you perceive of this organization that you choose to support? What would you change about it? What are the things about other mainstream news sites that you love and what are the things that you hate. Um, and then we get into a an exercise where we talk about the values for the organizations that they consider worth supporting. So here we're getting to, to inquiry about, you know, is it that you really want a sense of belonging and to be part of a group of, of people who share your values? Is it that you want to support something that really feels unique in the world that you can't get anywhere else? And or is it that you want the branded merchandise? And um, a, a quick spoiler is that almost no one tells us they want the merchandise. They really want money to go back into the core news product. And they want that that news product to be open. So what we've heard as we've conducted these um, sort of these meal-based uh, focus groups around the world is that members of news sites really want the core news product to be open to as many people as possible. Um, so that means wherever possible to take down paywalls. Um, but also to, to be able to, you know, still host member benefits like, um, an opportunity for new staff to, uh, you know, to actually meet members live, um, platforms for members to get to know one another. And I think there of places like Gimlet that has Slack channels for show hosts and members to meet online. Um, and also, you know, potentially other sort of members only perks. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the big insight from this work and, and the consistency across cultures has been pretty mind blowing. The importance of making the, the news open and accessible to all has really been astounding to me. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is so cool. And I mean, the first thing that I want to say is kudos to, you know, like making some of these resources available online, because I feel like as a research community, we could do a lot more of that and it would be really beneficial. So like sharing your discussion guide online is so cool, you know, and like allowing other people to actually kind of see the nuts and bolts um, is something that I really admire. And I think that like as a community, we could and should do more of it. And then I'm curious, like, this method sounds really interesting. And like, how many people are at these dinners? Are we talking like 10 people? Are we talking 50 people? And like, how do you facilitate this conversation with such a large group? Why does this feel like the most effective way to get the answers you're looking at? Dot, dot, dot. I always have sure. so many questions. Yep. Yeah. No, it's so many questions around it. So the first thing on the making the work open, that is absolutely imperative to me. And this is a place where I think Mozilla really got under my skin, the importance of sharing our work as much as possible so that other people can improve upon it. Mm -hmm. And similarly, we have a a membership models and news database that we encourage people to, um, to suggest other news sites around the world so that we can make it a really robust public resource. Mm. Um, and the second thing for the, for the meals. So we have done, I have found that actually having 12 members is a really nice number. Um, and it does, you know, it's definitely a situation where as a facilitator, you need to be absolutely on and have done your homework, um, into, you know, any of the information that people have shared with you in advance of the conversations. So you kind of have a, a clear sense of, the things that you want to draw out from people and making sure that you get a chance to hear from everyone at the table. Um, I will very regularly say at the beginning of those sessions, do not be offended if I cut you off. We have a lot to get through and I I really just want to keep us moving so that I have a chance to hear from everyone and so that the publishers can hear directly from you on the things that are important. Of course, in any 60 or 90 minute research session with multiple people, it's impossible to get to everything that you want to know. And so we have created a few kind of solo activities that we have people work on simultaneously. Um, and one of those is um, turning what used to be a card sort into the, the values topics and actually turning that into a worksheet. And that's really nice because then afterwards, the team can sort of look through and identify where are their outliers and where is their consistency in in what people shared. And again, that resource is available on our site. And then we have sort of a parting exercise that we've done, um, which is to, to send a postcard or a short letter to the news organization about what you think they're doing well and what you want to see them improve. Mm. And when we had done this in the Netherlands with day correspondent members, we initially got a little bit of pushback. They sort of looked at us like, this feels like a really sentimental exercise and I don't quite understand what it is that you're asking me to do. And so Jay Rosen, our project director and a longtime NYU journalism professor said, you know, let's, let's sort of like switch the way that we're talking about this and say, humor us. Like we have sort of this American custom. And if you'll, if you'll just go along with us, we'd love to have you write a few sentences. And that all of a sudden by sort of making light of the exercise and saying, look, we know this is a little bit goofy, but, but we do think it's going to be valuable. Um, it, it suddenly had this effect of kind of getting people on board with it and being willing to suspend disbelief a little bit. And, and, and so, what comes out of that is you get these really beautiful handwritten notes um, that that we are then able to share and sort of leave behind with the publishers we're visiting that really get at 
you know, why it is that people choose to support this work. And it really stands out in a, in a cultural moment where trust in news has never been lower. Um, and where, you know, it can feel like you can get sort of the commodity news of the day, just about anywhere online for free, being able to pass something along to reporters that says, I value this work. I talk to my students about it. Uh, I, I had a great discussion with a family member because of the investigation that you did. I think it's really so important to be able to, to show that evidence. Um, and it becomes sort of really nice when we think about the storytelling aspect of the work. Um, in many ways, I think I'm sort of becoming allergic to a presentation that's just bullet points of insights on slides. It just doesn't feel human. And if anything, it, it can feel like the opposite of what we're trying to do as researchers, which is to tell human stories and to, you know, to really work as advocates on behalf of, of the end users of our products. Um, and so in the case of Day Correspondent, we actually created a short video of, of, um, their members reading these postcards aloud. And it ended up making for like a really moving and touching and sometimes funny um, sort of presentation material. So I absolutely encourage researchers to sort of get creative and to think beyond PowerPoint and keynote slides when it comes to sharing the real themes of the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a beautiful, it's such a beautiful example of doing this work, you know, like, I love the idea of having people write handwritten notes because like you think about a handwritten note and what it means to you when you write one or when you receive one. And it there really is a lot of meaning. I feel like even more so because of how uncommon they are today. So I feel like that's such a powerful example of like making this work more human. And I love it. Um, I'm curious, like just hearing you kind of share about these, um, you know, focus groups, member dinners, what have you gotten out of them? Like, it sounds like, you know, obviously, like, you've gotten insight, you made this video, but I'm curious, like, if you were going to express that in a couple sentences, like, what have you gotten out of them, you know, and maybe in particular, what have you gotten out of them that you wouldn't have gotten out of um, other methods? Absolutely. So I think the two biggest things that have come across from our conversations with members that we would not have gotten if we had solely done um, survey work or even just asked news sites to tell us what members had shared with them, sort of like secondhand research. The first is an immense sense of shared responsibility. So I've been really impressed by the places where supporters of news, people who choose to pay for it, um, and in some cases above and beyond what they're asked for an annual subscription or, or a monthly membership, um, will tell us, you know, I have high expectations for this work. I expect it to be professional. I expect it to be stories that I that I can't find anywhere else. And also, in exchange, if if this news site finds the right way to tap my energy and to make asks for how I can help, whether I can provide expertise in in my field of work, if I can suggest sources, if I can be a technical proofreader or moderate comments or help at events or answer phones for pledge drives, my energy around that will be really inexhaustible. And I've been so impressed by this idea of shared duty that sort of breaks what I think of as a longtime publishing paradigm, which is I give you the news, you pay me for it, and that's sort of the end of the exchange. What we have found from members is really a, a more nuanced sense of there are things that I can offer you in ways that I can even be involved in the journalism itself that go well beyond sort of thinking about audience relationships starting when 
a reporter hits publish. It's actually bringing, and, and we're hearing that members actually are, are hungry for the opportunities to be involved in, in stories earlier on. And the mm. second piece that I think has been very striking to me that I would not have anticipated is the importance of the emotional connection. Um, and so this can be, you know, I recognize that reporter and I want to follow their work. Um, in some ways, it's a request to be less opaque and more transparent about the work that's being done. Um, all as a way of saying, you know, be more human. Tell me the things that you're working on because I, as a as a consumer of what you're doing, may actually have some good ideas for you. I've been impressed by the number of times that um, that members of news sites have told us. I, I find this organization to be humble. The idea of humility has come across a number of times. And I think, again, if we had done this, um, had undertaken this research in any other method, we would not have heard the word humble so much. And the way that, that people, um, the way that that translates for supporters of news sites is the idea that you acknowledge when you're wrong. So you publish a correction, um, and or you you identify places where your story was underreported and what your plans are to sort of rectify that that situation. Um, you ask for our ideas and our feedback. You have a culture of asking and of listening that really sets you apart apart from other mainstream news. Um, and you show me who's behind the work. I think this is so important. Many news consumers can identify maybe one to two people at a news organization, um, oftentimes the editor-in-chief and one favorite columnist or reporter. But that suggests to me actually a real need to humanize and make visible the people who are behind the work, um, as well as to show how much it costs and what goes into it. I've been pretty struck as we've talked to you know, professional people and people who are very intelligent around the world, the low levels of news literacy and understanding of how the business of news gets done and how editorial decisions are arrived at. And that to me suggests a real opportunity for all of our organizations to just be more transparent and forthcoming about how we're doing our work and the places where it's potentially not working. I think it really mm -hmm. goes a long way with people as opposed to, you know, sort of keeping things behind behind the curtain. Yeah. Well, and I'm curious, you know, you said you feel like, for example, the pattern of, you know, appreciation of humility is something that uniquely came out because of the method that you chose. And what was it that made you feel like this method kind of drew that out of your participants? I think there is something really special about actually sitting down and taking time with people. So um, when we when we have done this, I think a few things that have worked really well. The first is hosting it at the news site itself, wherever mm. possible. Um, and the idea of really like opening your doors and inviting people in goes a long way. I always encourage um, people who are observing, like people from the, the news organization that's hosting the conversation, not to be on their phones, even if they're doing that to take notes, because it can just look like they're on Snapchat or texting or doing something else, but to give the people who are in front of them their, their full and active attention. Um, I think also there is the importance of spending upwards of an hour plus together, um, in which, you know, you may not get anything surprising. Let's say for the first 20 minutes, it sort of feels like background information and we're just sort of warming up and everyone's getting to know each other. Um, 
But then in the course of people getting to hear from one another and sort of echo and expand upon the themes that their fellow members are sharing has a a really virtuous effect on encouraging people to be forthcoming. And even more so than one-on-one interviews. I used to actually have a strong preference for sitting down with someone one-on-one and the idea that they had sort of my undivided attention and we could go as deep as we needed to and time was more on our side. Mm -hmm. But actually, this work has encouraged me to think about how might we work with groups in ways that feel really fertile um, and also where the people who participate leave feeling like they didn't just do you a public service. They actually got something out of it too, beyond just, oh, that was interesting and it was kind of curious to hear your questions. I've just been, I've been so impressed by members saying to us, it was really nice to get to meet these other people. And they got me thinking about this in a way that I hadn't before. Interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think especially with a topic like this where people are genuinely, you know, curious, I think, about the news and how it gets made and, you know, like all the conversations that are going on today around, is it real? Is it fake? Like it's a it's a genuine topic of interest for people. And I'm sure that, you know, it's really interesting for them to get to hear others' perspectives on it as well. So Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, Emily, something that I wanted to follow up about was, you know, you talked about this presentation style um, of your findings where you, you know, made a video. And obviously these postcards are like a really cool artifact coming out of your work. I'm curious, how do you typically present your work? You know, like, are you ever using PowerPoints or are you constantly kind of trying to find these like creative ways to share what you're learning? So I've done a little bit of everything. And I, I would be remiss if I said that I am not still a frequent user of, of Keynote. Um, and I find actually it's probably the shortest way to be able to give people a clear sense of the work that we're doing and also to differentiate between donation, membership, and subscription because that can be sort of a murky a murky space. And so very frequently I will show slides that, you know, where we talk about subscription being a product-based transaction and, and we define membership as people joining a cause because they support it and because they believe in it and then they, and they want to see it, it furthered in the world. Um, so we're thinking really about fostering a culture around belonging and in giving well beyond money. So giving them your time, your expertise, your sources, et cetera. Um, and one thing that I try to do as often as I can is make sure that I'm not just talking about this work sort of at a, at a theoretical level, but that I'm bringing publishers and members of news organizations to these conversations so that people can hear from them in their own words. So when I think about an event that we're hosting at Columbia Journalism School in early February, my co-author Elizabeth Hansen from Harvard and I are really thinking, how do we make this a situation that's not just us getting up and sharing a bunch of slides, which I absolutely have been guilty of um, as early as last week. Um, And so our plan is let's share the, the key insights from our report in five to 10 minutes. Keep it really short and pretty meaty. Then transition and have a a panel so that we get to hear from people who who work at at 
sort of different vantage points within publishing. So we've got, you know, a a person who works for a website. We've got a person who, um, who helps fund these projects and then someone who's critical of them. I think it's always important to get a more skeptical voice. So it doesn't feel like we're just all cheerleading for our own work. And then, um, you know, a, a Q&A, an opportunity to get to bat around some questions, and then a quick sort of public ideation session where we say, what unanswered questions do you have about this work that our project might pursue in the months to come? And I think that's always really interesting because it sort of get, gives you an opportunity to take kind of like a semi-public temperature check of what outstanding questions do people have from this work? And what we've been doing as a research team is collecting those questions and sort of checking in every month with how are we doing in sort of addressing questions that members of the public have against our own research agenda. And so that's an interesting kind of gut check that I think keeps you pretty honest about how many unanswered inquiries you have and and what you're able to do with limited bandwidth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I love how it's so fun hearing about your work and about how much, you know, creativity you've kind of taken and how it seems like in a lot of ways that creativity has like fueled the really positive response that your work is getting. And I love the idea of, you know, presenting your findings and then also having a panel. And obviously that's, you know, somewhat unique to a conference setting, but I just love all of these examples of, you know, this interesting work you're doing where you're, you know, taking people to a bookstore or you're having like these intimate dinners or you're writing postcards or you're, you know, like having a panel with the, you know, to really bring alive this conversation that you're having and kind of reporting on. Cause I think, you know, so often it's easy for people to, you know, doubt or whatever. And, you know, so having an actual group of people sitting in front of you saying these things is so impactful. And I think as researchers, in so many ways, we're trying to create experiences for the teams that we support, right? We're trying to give them a moment, like a glimpse into this other experience, this other world. And I'm just so impressed with how you've been able to do that and all of these interesting ways in which you've done that. Oh, thank you for saying that. I'm I'm sort of vigorously nodding as you're talking about, you know, <laughs> it, it being an experience, not just for the people you're studying, but for the people you come back to tell stories with and to. We kicked off a really fun brainstorm recently with my research team at the Membership Puzzle Project thinking about, you know, we publish quite a few blog posts and they can be pretty text heavy, although we do have an amazing set of visual designers from Day Correspondent who we get to work with, the the very format of the work itself can sort of feel like, okay, we've all done this before. Mm -hmm. And so I've been thinking a lot about what are other ways that we can kind of publish our knowledge products that feel lively and that feel like something you want to dive into. Mm -hmm. And so some of the ideas that our team came up with, you know, maybe there's like a checklist for sites that are exploring membership, almost like a shopping list um, of considerations you might ask yourself before pursuing this work. Maybe there's some kind of like choose your own adventure card game. Maybe there, you know, and we haven't even begun to tap into what does it look like to publish some design principles and journey maps in this space. Um, You know, maybe there are also ways that we think about having office hours and almost ask me anything type sessions, Mm -hmm. just ways to bring the work to life that don't just feel like now we will talk at you. This is the way it is, but engage in more interactive dialogue with the people who we think can benefit from this work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's so fun to hear about it. And it feels so, 
Yeah, it feels like a powerful example of like a way that I could level up my own research game because I think it's so easy to fall into surveys and end up in the interviews and, um, you know, think that that's the best or like most effective method. But I do think there's all of this interesting, rich value that you get when you start to kind of broaden that perspective. It's it's really interesting. And I, I love that idea of like upping the research game so that we're not just defaulting to the same tired templates that we've been using for a long mm-hmm. time. I mean, I think the the analogies with with news are very clear to me. But you know, one thing that we haven't made, but I would love to someone to see someone do instead of a non-disclosure agreement for research participants would be a full disclosure agreement. The oh. idea that um I, as a researcher, am putting myself on the hook to be able to report back everything you share with me. And I'll Mm -hmm. be as forthcoming as I can be. And when we think about issues of trust and transparency, I think this is a great way to begin to address this. The idea that instead of us both being secret and keeping things close to the chest, actually, if we're both an open book, the work is much better served for it. And all of our organizations end up benefiting. Yeah. I love that point. Well, Emily, thank you so much for taking the time and walking me through all of this stuff. I feel I feel personally inspired by your work and really appreciate, you know, all of the ways that you're innovating in this space. Thank you. It was a pleasure to get to know you. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening today. If you want to continue the conversation, join us in the Slack group for a Q&A with Emily next Thursday, February 1st at 11 a.m. Pacific time. If you aren't already a member of the Slack group, you can request an invite under the community tab on our website, mixed-methods.org. Follow us on Medium and Twitter to stay up to date on the latest UX research trends. Special thanks to Denny Fuller, our audio engineer and composer, and Laura Lovett, our designer. See you next time.